Hi guys and welcome to our podcast, It's Just Not That Deep. Thank you for all the comments and feedback that you guys gave in our previous podcast show. That was quite fun recording. So I suppose today's topic has been something that we've always kind of been talking about in our WhatsApp group. It's always come up at work around psychosis. But before we sort of divulge in, I want to introduce everyone in the room. So it's your host LB, Jazz, F, Helen, James, N. So we've got three new people in the room today. So we've got Dr. James... Hi, I'm James. I'm a junior doctor working for the NHS in South East London. Mm. I'm training as a psychiatrist. And we've got the beautiful Helen with us today. Hello, I'm Helen. I've lived with bipolar disorder since my early 20s. I'm 73 now. Two of my children died and it was at that stage that I decided that I no longer wanted to teach Spanish and drama, which is what I was doing, and I would like to train as a nurse. And I thought at the start of my training I wouldn't want to do psych because I was too close to it, Mm. but in fact found I was no good at the drips and drains (laughs) and measuring side of nursing. Mm. And because I could see it from both sides of the fence, I found myself doing psychiatric nursing and loving it. Right. Thank you, Helen. And Anne? Hi, I'm Anne. So I have a brother who has been diagnosed with psychosis. So I'm just kind of here to give, I guess, my perspective of living with someone who has psychosis. Mm. Thank you, guys. And I suppose today really is quite an important discussion and one that hopefully will try and stick to the theme of what is psychosis, which is what somebody asked that question on social media. We're going to cover quite a few subtopics, but interact with us. Let us know what you think, or if you have any questions, drop us an email or an Instagram, Facebook. We're going to hand it over to Dr. James. And in terms of what is psychosis, which is what one of the listeners asked. It's a really good question. It's a question that's sort of taken me a long time to kind of figure out, I guess. Right. It's something which is poorly misunderstood, maybe, or poorly represented in society, in the media, in films and books, because it can be quite difficult to understand at times. And I sort of look at it from sort of three separate components of psychosis. So I think the first one really is about someone experiencing thought disorganization or thought disorder, as we call it. So that's one... That's a one component of how I look at it, yeah. And then I guess the next part is about people's perception, which is what we often sort of hear in the media, and that's about people's sort of experience or interpretation of their senses. So it might be things like hearing voices, which Mm. is probably the most common kind of psychotic symptom. And then, again, sort of on a similar front about interpretation is just people's interpretation of themselves and the world around them. Their interpretation of their self, whether they're in control of their self even, uh, of themselves, or whether they have different interpretations of the significance of things. And that's when it can lead to things like sort of what we might call delusions, which are sort of false of beliefs which are quite sort of firm and fixed. So does the person have to meet all three of those criteria, or could it be just one? No, they don't have to meet all, all three at all and actually there's lots of different disorders which can have psychotic symptoms but don't necessarily have to have psychotic right. symptoms. So as Helen mentioned, bipolar disorder. Mm. So a type 1 bipolar disorder can have psychotic symptoms yeah. either with a depression or with the opposite of that of mania. Okay. But there are lots of different disorders like schizophrenia, mm-hmm. schizoaffective disorder, mm-hmm. drug-induced psychotic episodes, and even just there are kind of psychotic symptoms which are 
relatively normal kind of experiences. So things like hallucinations that you might get as you wake up or as you go to sleep or different experiences that you might have if a loved one dies and you feel a presence Mm. or you can hear someone's voice or see them. So Uh, somebody asked on social media as well, schizophrenia, is mm -hmm. that a branch of psychosis or would you say because I suppose some people are saying are those terms used interchangeably in some ways but I think yeah it's 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 a part of psychosis so if you take psychosis as a broad kind of description um, of these kind of three main aspects of illness or symptoms Mm -hmm. and then bipolar and schizophrenia the main types of psychotic disorders okay and can you give us any stats as to how maybe population can give it a go from memory but yes. I have I have had a, a sort of brief look and and when we talk about kind of psychotic symptoms in the general population there are yeah. stats out there about sort of 12 percent of people experiencing psychotic symptoms right like these what we call for example a hypnopompic hallucination which is okay when you wake up and you see something basically and that's relatively common so that's psychotic symptoms psychotic disorders are less common about 4% okay. prevalence, mm. and of that, bipolar is probably about 1% prevalence okay. in the sort of mm. general But 12% population. in general population? Of just psychotic symptoms, so okay. that's not that's just an experience, which sure. can be can be a one-off. No, thank you. I think, so I, I suppose as we were talking, because we've got two people in the room from with various different experiences, so I suppose maybe we were thinking, Helen, passing it over to you, telling us a little bit about what's it like to have been living with psychosis and bipolar and what that's been like. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about when you first yes. triggered um, or developed. Uh, my first episode, my husband and I, my first husband and I were working in Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia, and we were uh, working as missionaries. We were teaching in an African secondary school for girls. Wow. I I had my first child, Joseph, with no problems at all. Then when I was pregnant with Mark, we were living in a little place, tiny little place called Gwanda, and I went into labour two months prem. And the nursing staff said in this tiny little hospital, if you're still experiencing symptoms in the morning, you'll have to go through to Bulawayo. Mm. And I went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I felt someone's hands on my stomach. Mm. And the contractions had stopped. Ah. And I opened my eyes. And in the far corner of the room, there was a vision of Christ. And he was crying bitterly. And I looked at him and I said, you've stopped the contraction, so why are you looking so sad? And the vision faded. And my first husband was an Anglican priest. And when I reported this to him, he said, you're mad. You're mad. People people don't have visions like that. Mm. But... In a way, it mm. it touched base with how I had been brought up as a Christian child, with with okay. Jesus's father being yeah. God appearing in a dream and, and and this sort of thing. You know, this kind of language, these sort of experiences. People didn't end up in hospital. You know, it was just yeah. part of the Christian myth. And I just thought, well, wow. how lucky I am. Now, when I did my training, of course, I realised I had had both a tactile and an, a visual Visual. hallucination. So, Helen, when you, did you say you were asleep? When you, or was yeah, it a dream I, I or was it, or were you more in a... I woke up state? to feel these hands on okay. my stomach. Okay. And then in the corner, I saw this vision. Okay. But although I now know what it was, mm. it has remained a very comforting thing. Yeah. Because, in a way, it has made sense. Because 
there was an awful lot of pretty ghastly stuff ahead. The contractions started up the next day. I went through to Bulawayo. Baby Mark was born. In those days, right. you didn't even see the baby. You know, he was snatched away. He was right. six over six pounds, which at two pounds prem was pretty good. Right. But it was primary atelectasis or something, sticky lungs. You know, they couldn't mm-hmm. get him breathing. So he died, and I never saw him again. Our eldest son, Joseph, died very suddenly at 12 of embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma, a very rare throat cancer. Oh, My gosh. husband left me for a gay relationship you know there was plenty for wow. Christ to be sad about yeah. and it made sense if you see what I mean yeah while also being a hallucination so Helen let me ask you so that's the incredible lot that you've had to experience and I know we we're just kind of talking about those things but how was that for you I mean the shock for me was that my husband who was an Anglican priest didn't believe me. Right. And I'm not saying I didn't have bipolar disorder. My goodness me, I have had enough episodes to know yeah. that I definitely have bipolar disorder. But it was it was a great shock not to be believed. And the way I found myself in hospital, you know, was pretty frightening and, and, and all that. So know. what happened afterwards? So your two children passed away and then... Then Richard said he was leaving relationship yes mm-hmm. I didn't know at that time he was leaving me for a, for a series of gay relationships and he has right. actually married a man whom I like very much and mm. everything has worked out wonderfully because although I married again which also sadly didn't last but for different reasons mm-hmm. I am now very very happily married to Jeff Mm. Um, I think one of the things I have learned in my life is is that as well as the right being on the right medication, you also need to have the right partner or the right support. Support system, mm-hmm. yeah. Support system. So what happened in terms of how did your diagnosis kind of come about? How did you kind of end up in the hospital sort of systems? I'm just wondering what that route was. And... Oh, right. Well, the doctor I w- was asked to see asked me what the day was. Is this now in the UK? That we've... No, no, this is in Zimbabwe. Right, okay. And this hospital apparently has now been closed, and it's many years ago, as we know, but I called the poem on the third day. Mm. I'm afraid if you cannot remember today's date, I will have to admit you to a hospital. Her mind was blank. Feverishly, she tried to recall. Was it Friday? Saturday? She honestly couldn't remember. I'm afraid if you cannot remember today's date, I will have to admit you to a hospital. The silence was unbearable. It was not the silence of a quiet exam room where your mind has to race against the clock. I'm afraid if you cannot remember today's date, I will have to admit you to hospital. Finally, in a trembly voice, she said, I'm afraid my baby son has just died. I haven't seen a paper since. The date just doesn't seem important. I'm afraid if you cannot remember today's date, I will have to admit you to hospital. How long for? she whispered. Two days, said the doctor. She went. It was the people with slashed wrists who frightened her the most, some bandaged, some raw and healing. It's only for two days, she said to herself. It's only for two days, it's only for two days, it's only for two days, it's only for two days. On the third day, she smiled at a passing nurse. It's my turn to see the doctor today. Shut up and sit down. It was then she sank into the abyss. And I can't remember how long I stayed in hospital. I can't remember anything more about that admission. Mm. But writing about it has helped. Mm. Mm. And so this was your first admission? So this was the only admission? This was my first admission, yes. 
The second one was very different. Do you want me to go on with that? Or yeah, not? so I suppose that, so telling us a little bit about what what that process, what that journey was like, whichever bits you can remember, yes, I guess, giving yes. the, the listeners a bit of an insight into... Well, the bishop eventually said to Richard, you must take her home, you must take her back to England, and so we went. And after various jobs that I absolutely loved and Richard hated, for instance, he was a curate at Southwick. I loved being a curate's wife. Yeah. We had various jobs. He didn't like any of it. And eventually he said, I want to go to New Zealand. Well, you can't get any further away from your family than New Zealand. Yeah. But we'd had to leave uh, Zimbabwe because of me. I thought we must go to New Zealand now. It's my turn to do something for Richard and so we went and when I was pregnant with my third child Jonathan the amazing thing was I had the most incredible pregnancies Mm. morning sickness what's that (laughs) glorious hair wonderful skin you know but the moment a baby was born not Joseph funnily enough but with Mark and with Jonathan was like straight up into a high or into a psychotic episode. Okay. And I can remember leaning over Jonathan's cot and saying, Jonathan, if mummy kills herself, daddy will marry again and you'll have a proper New Zealand family. Mm. And it never occurred to me that he might like his own mother, but I I bought a bottle of vodka or something and I downed a hundred malaria pills, I think they were, or something, wow. locked myself in and woke up in a pool of vomit and was shipped off to hospital. And that formed a pattern of stress in my life. Helen's off to hospital, you know, kind of thing. So, Helen, was that triggered by after you had your baby? And is that... I'm just wondering what what made you kind of... Sorry, I'm being naive in this sense. Mm -hmm. So you, you drank the alcohol and you took the pills. Yes. So that Richard would marry again and they would have a proper New Zealand family. I was so homesick. And I thought these children won't be homesick if their English mummy is out of the way. I mean, that's how screwed up I was. So that was the kind of thought that you actually really held on to? Yes, that's right. That's right. right. So that's the one that I I remember most clearly. But what was amazingly lucky was that during the 25 years that I lived in New Zealand, I was treated by the same Indian doctor as an inpatient and as an outpatient Mm. all those 25 years. So he knew me better than I knew myself. Mm. And there was one incredible admission, the the only time I was sectioned. Richard used to say to me, he had given up the priesthood by then and was teaching. Mm. He said, Helen, I love it when you're in hospital because I can take a term off teaching and look after the children. He was very good with the children. He really was. And I can remember coming out of hospital after an admission once and being quite drugged and Richard would get up to the boys in the night and because we adopted off of that. We went, once we realised that childbirth and childbirth seemed to set yeah. off my bipolar s- symptoms, mm. we adopted. We've, we did a lot of fostering and we adopted two children as well. Mm. And I, I can remember I came out of hospital quite drugged and Richard was getting up to the children at night. And one night I remembered hearing Mike, our youngest, whimpering. And I woke and Richard didn't. And I went and I took him to the loo Mm. and I popped him back into bed and I got back into bed myself and I thought, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. I'm recovering my mothering skills again. I'm Mm. getting better. 
the following morning, my next door neighbor rang up and said, Helen, what's going on? And I said, what do you mean, what's going on? She said, Richard's been over here ringing the hospital, saying that you're getting the children up in the middle of the night and dressing them. Uh And the team came out, and they didn't believe me. So I used to tell the students, you know, don't just believe the well one. You know, there may be a hidden agenda going on, you know. And I refused to go because it was just not true what was happening. And so I was sectioned. And lovely Dr. Wettersing the following morning, you know, by then I felt like a prick balloon and there I was sitting there. Mm. He said, Helen, you're not going to run away, are you? He said, we sometimes feel we've got the wrong one in here, but you're not going to run away, are you? Mm. And I said, no, of course I'm not. He said, I'm tearing up committal papers. And that didn't mean anything to me then. But boy, Jeff has a son in America, and I now don't have to declare the fact that I have been sectioned okay. and because it's, there's no record of it. Mm. The papers were torn up. My sister Anne, who's also bipolar, couldn't attend her daughter's wedding in America because Gosh. of the number of times she was sectioned. sectioned. So it had it, consequences as yes, well. Yes, that's right. Which mm. is interesting, isn't it, when you think about stigma and, and sort of Mm. I'm wondering what the reasons for that might be. I mean, they're probably, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know that that, had, that, mm. that would have consequences when it comes to visas and immigration. Mm. Mm. But Helen, you mentioned when, you know, they said that you were getting the kids up at night to dress them up. Mm. So what was happening there then? So there was... I had just, as I described, I had heard Mike whimpering. Right. And I went to him, took him to the loo, and he was a sort of two-year-old, you know, to- yeah. and popped him back to bed. And that was all that happened. Yeah. But Richard got to a place where he knew that he was believed and I wasn't. And I dare say there were some times mm. when that was accurate, probably. Yeah. I can't remember. But that occasion has stayed in yeah. my mind because it was not the truth. It was not fact. You know, as I'm sort of hearing your story, I'm, I'm looking at you, James, in terms of that poem especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, those questions are kind of like routine questions in terms of, when you're trying to get the patient, ask him about orientation. And I just wonder what, if any thoughts or reflections that you, you might have from hearing Helen's story. And Not not so much from a medical point of view. Um, mm. It just sort of resonates with me from a sort of, I guess, personal point of view. Yeah. In that uh, my mother had bipolar disorder. And mm. so she had been in and out of hospital at times and had been yeah. particularly unwell. Mm. And so I remember sort of occasions when she just completely sort of wasn't herself, whether it was being incredibly depressed, Mm. taking overdoses or Mm. being very high and sometimes that kind of transformed into aggression and Mm. things like that. And there were other times that she, to me at the time, just felt, it just felt completely bonkers and we had no sort of explanation Mm. as to why she was saying things about spies and their by five different right. things mm. and so just thinking about Helen in that situation mm. I think about my own mother in that situation so yeah. it really kind of resonates with me definitely I think there's something about that poem Helen that really kind of hits you in the chest mm-hmm. I think it's just the interaction between you and the, the sort of the doctor mm. and really feeling frightened and scared and I just think when you read it it really brought the situation to life but I'm wondering Ed that you mentioned your brother being impatient, and I suppose hearing Helen's story, yeah, maybe just give us a bit of background in terms of what your thoughts or reflections. And yeah, so my brother is currently at hospital. He has he was diagnosed with psychosis around four years ago, 
So he's 27 and prior to his diagnosis he was a professional football player and he got an injury which caused him to permanently quit playing football. So he's kind of done that most of his life so that's all he has known. So he took the turnaround to go to university and I guess start finding himself there and yeah it's literally that saying when you get caught in the wrong crowd wrong friends that kind of thing so yeah I mean he he went to a university outside of London so I didn't really see him as much but when he would come and visit us I slowly noticed certain changes in his behavior and personality and his appearance I think as a family we didn't want to like push too much with questions we just kind of let it play its course we just thought it was kind of like a phase when you kind of are finding yourself at that time and then there was one time when I remember very very well he came back when it was summer and he was extremely extremely underweight and his appearance was very altered and he then was quite slurry with how he would speak and whenever he would hug me or just Mm. look at me he would have a long stare like literally just stare like a full-on stare like a full-on stare and then he would then say to me did you hear that and I'd say hear what (laughs) and he's like oh no nothing 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 so it was very died down and then it got to the point where he would then keep asking that same question to me okay and then he then started there was one time where he said I know what you said you know I said said what Mm. he said you know I understand telepathy I was like telepathy I didn't even know what that was Mm, (laughs) so for me I was just as confused like what do you mean by telepathy Mm -hmm. and then he was like how it's where you can I think it's where you can pick up voices from how you think yeah so you can probably like say he's reading your mind yeah 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 in that sense and obviously hearing that that kind of freaked me out a little bit because it's like (laughs) why is he speaking like this I don't understand and you know my mum she pretty much picked up on it straight away and you know we're from an African family so things like this is very hush hush Mm. so we don't speak about this dad's a pastor so in a sense in itself this was definitely we cannot say anything Mm. because to me because my dad he's someone that I think in terms of our religion so it's that Pentecostal so it's kind of all about against spiritual devils and all that kind of stuff so to us we saw this as some sort of like I guess spirit attacking him like a possession sort of in that sense yeah so obviously as a family would do we would pray Mm -hmm. against that to obviously stop it so and how how did you do that with a brother who I'm just wondering how Mm. what we was thinking or how did he make sense of that so was there like a family discussion that you had oh Um, yeah yeah So what, yeah, so I guess like what happened now? Yeah, so we had kind of like an intervention actually. So I think it was a case where we started noticing certain patterns as in he would constantly question what we're thinking, what he thinks he thinks we're thinking. So he would kind of go out late at night and he would call it, he would go to the shop, quote unquote. And at night time was the worst because everyone's asleep. He's wide awake. He's pretty much, we have a balcony Mm -hmm. and he goes there a lot and he's either smoking, whether it's cigarettes or weed, which is pretty much what he did when he was up. So that's kind of where it started from, essentially. And he would basically be up till like four in the morning. So, and at this point, we were kind of afraid of our safety because 
you have to remember this is a family home. So he's he he you know when I'm saying he's going out, he's leaving the door unlocked. Oh, I see. So he's leaving the door unlocked, and my mum is literally. She's pretty much awake, so she has to be awake because before mm. you know, anyone can walk in. Mm. And yeah, it, it's just pretty much monitoring his constant walkabouts and how he moves around the house. And I think it just got to the point where we just had to have the intervention. We had to basically explain everything. And when we all did, we all took it in turns. So I have two brothers and... No, sorry, I have two sisters mm-hmm. and one brother and, of course, my brother here. Yeah. And we all went around and explained what we've noticed, a change in him. Okay. And I think he was just in denial. He was just mm-hmm. pretty much saying that right. we're all attacking him, we're all mm-hmm. trying to find excuses. You don't. We don't want him to be successful. It was kind of like he was so in denial was turning it on us as if we were making him feel this way right and he he, he actually would openly say that we're causing him to smoke so yeah. to hear that as a family you just feel like what can i what can we do yeah and it's been like this constantly to the point where as of recently there was a situation that happened which he basically tried to attack us so right. it was to keep it very, very brief, sure. it was a situation where he was up at night okay. and he had left the garden door unlocked and my little brother had simply said to him, can you please, like, you need to shut this door. Right, yeah. And then once he had shut the door, my, my brother had shut the door and walked away. Mm-hmm. My other, the brother was like, come back and walk and say that to my face. So it was okay. kind of like starting an argument. Mm-hmm. And then next thing you know, he tried to just, like, grab and choke hold my brother and then it got quite heated mm. so we all came rushing down trying to stop yeah. it it was a case where everything was being smashed Gosh. basically if you go near him he would attack you essentially mm-hmm. and I think we were just at our breaking point and immediately we called the ambulance and the police one of our neighbors who's the same age as him mm-hmm. he's quite friendly with him so he kind of heard this commotion happening Mm. and he actually asks if he can speak to him we were like just take him because Mm. at this point we don't want him in the house Mm. so we're waiting for the police and ambulance to come and then you know the neighbor was calming him down and then eventually the police and ambulance came and then they took him away and he's now currently in in hospital mm. where he's been receiving treatment. So he's getting like antidepressants. Okay. They've recently diagnosed him now with schizophrenia. Yeah? Okay. So that's kind of like more news to me that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the journey that we've been dealing with. And I'm just <laughs> wondering, so yeah, you were saying that it's a religious family. Right. Probably mental health services probably was not really discussed mm-hmm. in the family. Is that is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And... It was only until the breaking point, I suppose, like you guys, mm. something happened. And I wonder how that impact on your family, yeah. what that's been like for you guys, and also to see such a different side to your, to your sibling. Mm. It's not been easy. Even now that he's in hospital, it's still not easy. Like, so my little brother, he actually shares a room with him. Right. So you can only imagine sharing a room with mm. someone. Mm. So he would probably be the better person because he has to deal with the constant talking to himself the constant he has full-on conversations and Mm. you know you can't tell him stop doing that Mm. because obviously you don't want to anger him Mm. or upset him so it's just kind of letting him do his thing but Mm. I think as a family it's it's hard because I think in the beginning 
we were very hush hush about it just mm-hmm. because we felt like oh this is this is not right this is yeah. you know this will pass even and i think when it got worse we then realized we, we need help yeah you know we we, we can't do this on our own yeah. and we got i don't know what they're called but it's people from where they come in as an aid where they check to see if the person they they do drug tests and things okay. like that. So they kind of check in on him initially, and I think it was kind of like, okay, we have to be more open about this now because it's a case now where we ourselves weren't even educated on all this. Yeah. So for me, I didn't know what all this like schizophrenia, psychosis. I had yeah. no idea about it, even bipolar depression. Yeah, yeah. Until he had experienced it. Yeah. And it's funny now because both my parents are very much all about researching it now. Okay. So they're very, especially my dad, he's more involved in researching and understanding mental health. Okay. As my mum, I think prior to that, we were just kind of, you know, not as open, not talking about it. Yeah. I think if we dared brought up things like, oh, I'm feeling depressed, it would just kind of be like a, just sweep it under the rug kind of thing. But okay. now it's it's very much like... We have to talk about it because this is someone that we know is living with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to know if you or anyone in your family had Mm. a sense of guilt and if that support was there Mm. for you and your family Mm. around that, not just for him, but Mm. was there any support systems for yourself to kind of process what was going on? Yeah, so, like, the aide that would come to visit him, I guess she would kind of educate us in some way. So mm. we would all have, like, like the family meeting where she would be there as well, um, facilitating it. Mm. And she would go around in circles and ask how we feel towards how his behaviour is. Okay. And I think we'd be apprehensive in speaking about it just because we didn't want to charge him because he's mm-hmm. a very defensive type of guy. Mm-hmm. Like, if you even say anything about little things to him he would just question you why why like what what you know so we were just kind of like hesitant to say stuff but I think the more it got on the more we had to speak up Mm. and I think when she was really allowing us to be more open about it and speak to him more about it I think that in itself was a bit of help Mm. but I think in terms of the episodes that he had Mm. so like he had so many, mm. lost count. And I think there were times where we would always call the ambulance service or just anyone. And, mm. you know, they were just kind of, they, you know, they would say take him to A&E and we would. And then they would just pass it off as, yeah, he's fine, this and that. Because my, my brother is someone where it's, it's weird. It's very interesting. He's quite, I wouldn't say manipulative, but he can be in front of a professional right. and play it off as nothing is wrong. You know, he can literally do it and he can do it very, very well. But when he's at home with us, we are left to hear him talk to himself. Mm. We are left to hear him. So it's as if like it's us against him, if that makes sense. Mm. So we're trying to prove a case that this boy Mm. needs help. Mm. And he's fighting against that case saying, no, I'm fine. Look, I'm fine. And, you know, he speaks very well. He's very, he's very intelligent. Quite articulate. Yeah, he's very articulate. Yeah. Yeah. So for us, it was kind of like battling against that to try and prove to people this boy needs help. Mm. So I feel like in the early stages, it was very hard to prove that to Mm. people. And I think as soon as when that attack happened, that's when the professionals started 
coming in and intervening and wanting to start helping. But yeah. it did take a period of a while to get there. Mm. Which I guess brings me on like to the next kind of topic around treatment management and, and medication. So I suppose, James, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the, the medication side of things. First, it'd be good to, I think, just discuss one of the really sort of key components sure. of all of this, which I think is something called insight. Not just, for example someone's personal insight of their issues that they're having but also I guess a kind of objective insight as well from family members okay and I think what made me think about it was Jazz's comment about guilt and sort of coming through that kind of cycle of concern confusion anger and then kind of realization that something is wrong with the person and it's a health problem yeah and then you do feel guilt but it's kind of very mixed up with lots of feelings of blame about why are they behaving like this? Mm. Why have they done this? And why have they said this? And why are they smoking? And why? Yeah. And I think insight is so key to all of it. And it's why mental health, I yeah. guess, is so challenging. Because it's a really different model. Like when you mm. come to A&E with chest pain, you know that you have chest pain and you might be having a heart attack and you agree to yeah. blood tests. Yeah. And it's a simple kind of, I mean, it's amazing, but it's a simple sort of plumbing model where mm. a blood vessel is closed and you give some medications or treatment to open it up. And that person is yeah, yeah. 99 times out of 100 willing to have that treatment. Yeah. But one of the key sort of components to psychotic illnesses usually is lack of insight right. mm. um, for a number of reasons and I think one of the main ones I think that I learnt probably during medical school around mm. the same time that we had some teaching from Helen was that actually it's kind of understandable because a lot of the things that your brother mentioned mm. are in some ways very true mm. and there are lots of understandable reasons for how he's behaving so I guess as human beings we're sort of built to interact with the world around us via our senses and it's the only thing that we have to trust in terms of what on earth is going around and yeah, yeah. going on in this huge world mm. so what we hear is what we hear what we feel is what we feel so if one of your loved one tells one of your loved one tells you that actually yeah what on earth are you on about you're not here yeah. i can't hear anything then you start to, i think you would start to question other things then and so that's one component of it in this kind of thought disorganization that I talked about before. Yeah, yeah. So often people's thoughts can become quite jumbled up um, and they can be quite distracted or they can then focus on other things. And there are things that we notice in disorders like schizophrenia where people have yeah. things which are manifested in their speech. So things mm -hmm. like one thing is called thought block where... Someone will speak and they will stop abruptly. Right. Um, and then they might start again in the same topic or something completely different. And right. sometimes from that level of thought disorganization, people start to develop delusions from that. And they think that thoughts right. are being removed from their head. And so that, uh, that might be a form of telepathy and mm -hmm. all these okay. sorts of things. When really it's the, the thought blocking that's happening. Is that Well, yeah. So I think that that's... Part of an explanation for it, and I yeah. don't think that explains right. all of it. So I think that's a really key component is just to sort of for yeah. us to try and understand really how kind of vulnerable someone is in that situation that actually they're not mm. this scary kind of axe wielding mm -hmm. monster, but actually it's incredibly vulnerable. 
human yeah. being. And when they get to that breaking point, then they are kind of on fight or flight response because their whole world is jumbled up yeah, through their senses, their thoughts, mm-hmm. their family. You know, there's lots of delusions sometimes about being monitored. And of course, your your brother kind yeah. of because he had to be, he was monitored, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And so I guess people then, part of these disorders can be that people can respond mm-hmm. in really sort of agitated and aggressive ways mm-hmm. for lots of different reasons. But I think we have to have a, you asked about medication, yeah. but we have to have a much broader sort of understanding of it. And medication is vitally important, I think, right. in a lot of people, although for some people it doesn't work at the moment. Medication is really important, but I went to medical school in Brighton, Mm-hmm. We were always kind of this kind of model of biopsychosocial aspects yeah. to illness um, was always drilled into us. And I think looking back for very good reason, of course, yeah. because there are biological susceptibilities to psychotic illnesses. But there are if you look at the stress vulnerability kind of model, there mm. are lots of social stressors and psychological stressors which can impact on someone's development of a psychotic disorder. Yeah. but also their recovery and their maintenance of that recovery. So yeah. whilst medication is really important, I think, we yeah. need to look at the whole person yeah. and society as well and their views of psychosis. I suppose that's where formulation is quite a handy tool, thinking mm. more from psychologically. Yeah, pretty much what James, echoing what James was saying, I suppose that holistic care in terms mm. of thinking about, like you said, the vulnerabilities and the kind of maybe the interactions childhood-wise, genetically. And I suppose mm. all of that is like a bit of a blueprint as to how you're then going to cope with life stresses. But I, I suppose before we kind of divulge into that, and I'm just looking at you because I'm thinking, what was your experience like when it came to sort of treatment and, and management? Well, initially, you see, it was assumed that it was depression, that having lost the, the, the baby, right. you see. And it was a while before it was recognised that now it was bipolar because certainly I I don't think any of us as a family had any idea that that uh, there was a familial tendency I think there's people are still reluctant to say that okay. it's hereditary aren't they they just say familial tendency yeah. or something am I right in that or, or yeah I think so because it again there is there's quite a large component of bipolar disorder which is heritable but mm, yeah. the environment plays a really huge role. I suppose you have a vulnerability if, or a yeah. predisposition towards mm. developing, but that doesn't mean that yeah. you, you will. Mm. So, you, you, yeah. so someone with a first-degree relative with bipolar disorder, which I speak of acutely because I've worried about it for half of my yeah. life, mm. is that they have about a sort of roughly about a 7% risk okay. of developing bipolar disorder mm. as opposed to 1% in the general population. Mm. So mm. it's certainly it's one of the disorders where heritability is quite important but there are lots of other factors and actually yeah. you've got a 93 percent chance of not getting bipolar disorder and isn't it something to do with the short arm of chromosome 11 or something well, <laughs> well, i know more than i, I, I don't know but i sometimes wonder too if it's a learned response okay if, you know from my this is how we have learned to respond to stress. So how have you understood it as? So I suppose, going back to that question of treatment and, and management, mm. what, what was that experience or that journey was like? Um, well, mum was treated very successfully with lithium, though when she was depressed she was also treated with ECT in those days, unmodified ECT, which meant she came home with the little burn marks on her head, whereas now right. it's done with sort of like naught bottle tops, isn't it, sort of thing mm. that, that absorbs the... 
So I suppose for anyone that doesn't know, that's electroconvulsive therapy. I found that very, very helpful, ECT, and it was explained to me during our training that it literally jump-starts the nerves, that when you're depressed, the nerves are like that, and the messages are literally not getting through, and so the antidepressants are meant to be the glue binding them together. But if they don't, then the ECT sort of jump-starts everything. And conversely, when you are manic... The yeah. nerves are overconnecting. That was how it was explained, explained to, us to you in yeah. my so degree did you, course. So, mm. when you had your episode and then you, you sort of sectioned and admitted, so was there no kind of mention of psychological help? Was it all very kind of medicalized? It was medicalized from memory. I think that particular admission was quite short because okay. I think they ended up believing that. You know, it was a, a marital dispute. Okay. But mum was on, on lithium very successfully for about 50 years. You, and you have a, a blood test once a year. And when she was about yeah. 70 or so, the blood test came back. Oops, you must come off your lithium. Now, in those days, they just took her off her lithium and nothing was substituted. Right. And she shot into a terrible depression from right. which she never recovered. It must have been really tough to see uh, in sort of childhood. Oh. Oh. Do you have memories of seeing Well, she, she was probably in her late 70s, early 80s then, a, a woman who had dealt with books all her life and assisted right. my father in his writing and things. She she ended up in a nursing home. She okay. didn't want any books. She didn't want to take part in anything yeah. that was going on. You know, It was tragic. But anyway, then, then it turned out that my mother and my sister Anne and myself all developed uh, lithium toxicity. So okay. when the same thing happened to me, I was put on sodium valproate, okay. which worked a treat for me. Okay. Uh, it gave me a bad tremor for the first six weeks, so right. much so that I could hardly hold a, a pen. Yeah. The psychiatrist said, we'll give it one more week, and then we, we may look at changing it. Yeah. But it, it, had, it had settled down. And now I only have a tremor when I'm particularly yeah. upset or, or nervous about something. My boys have been brought up by their dad to think of me as mad mum, and I'm a bit sort of trembly around them. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I'm a bit nervous because my eldest son, Jonathan, who's a, yeah. a policeman in New Zealand, is coming over with his family next oh, week. Lovely. and you know, mad mum's going to try not to be mad mum. You know? So is that the narrative that's been held in the family, do you think? Oh, sort yes, of- absolutely. And Absolutely. how does that sit with you? With, with, certainly with, with my immediate family. Okay. Um, and how does that sit with you as being this mad, mad mum, is it? Um, I, I was very, very much saddened by it. Yeah. The interesting thing is that I once said to Richard, had we known that I was going to develop bipolar disorder, would, would you have married me? And he said, of course not. Right. Um, whereas Anne's first breakdown occurred when she and Kim were engaged Okay. And he he didn't give up on it. Wow. But they adored each other, those okay. two. But he, he didn't treat her the right way, if you know what I mean. Okay. You know, for instance, you know, she would come back after months in hospital. Mm. One of the things she loved doing most was being a volunteer guide in Canterbury Cathedral. She lived in oh, Canterbury. Okay. One thing that had got her in for an admission was she couldn't drink any water because it hadn't been blessed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Oh, dear okay. soul. She wasn't even an Anglican, you know. But... Anyway, after she was home again, she went back to the cathedral and all her friends were there were so thrilled to see her again and she was telling Kim all about this and you know, how right. marvellous it was. And he said, Anne, you're getting a bit high, you're not going back there again. 
And this was his response. And because he was not a believer, any time that, uh, because religio increased religiosity is often a sign of bipolar, any okay. hint of that, and Kim was down on her like a ton, ton of bricks. Right. And so she got more and more and more sort of squashed and unable mm. to express mm. herself. So it, it always mm. kind of felt like it was managed by, talking about your experience mm. in particular, it was managed by medication. When Anne was diagnosed with lithium toxicity, they said, we'll give her sodium valproate because Helen's doing so well on it. Mm -hmm. Now, a, a small side effect of sodium valproate is it turns you into a bleeder. So you, you, you uh. bleed slightly longer than other people. All, all it means is you hang on to a plaster a bit longer. Anne's blood didn't clot. And okay. so she couldn't take it. And they never, ever quite found the right medication for her. But also she didn't, even though she, right. she and Kim were devoted to each other, he didn't manage her in a way that was positive. He was also quite difficult. He, he's the first to describe, he's a very, very intelligent man. He's first to describe himself as somewhere on the autistic spectrum. Right. He has to sleep with the television on in their room all night or the radio on all night. He was yeah. not easy to live with, you know. And that probably wasn't very helpful for her. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Sleep's quite important. Well, quite. Bipolar, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but he would come, he was a lecturer at Canterbury University and would just come come back from work and collapse on the sofa, sleep for two or three hours, and then wouldn't sleep at night. You'd be up at night. Right. So it was it was difficult for him. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. So I say it was difficult because Anne died last last October. Gosh. Yeah, September. Sorry to hear that. Mm. And so I suppose what, what things kind of helped you sort of thinking preventatively? What kind of factors? So you already mentioned social support and, and kind and of... And being accepted for response. nursing training. Okay. Oh, that you know, when I thought, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, yeah, I was thrilled to be accepted for nursing training and just, just loved being a community psychiatric nurse. Oh, really, really yeah. loved it. And the three psychiatrists I worked for over the fifteen years that I worked as a CPN, they all said, "I said, can I use my own mental health?" And they said, "Where you feel feel comfortable." And I did. And only on two occasions did somebody go to the psychiatrist and say, "I don't want to be nursed by a nutter." So they just gave him another <laughs> another nurse. That yeah. was all right. I suppose that's a really interesting bit you've touched upon. I suppose narrative around mm. sort of bipolar and psychosis, which we'll come back to. Hi guys, thank you so much for listening to part one of episode nine. Stay tuned for part two next week Sunday.